Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and families and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook or the djburr on Instagram. Hello and welcome to another edition of Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. And today I am here talking with a trusted colleague, Danielle Debray. Danielle, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you're here. You know, I heard your name several years ago um, when I first got into recovery. So it was about five years ago mm-hmm. and it was on a CD and you were giving a talk and it was inspirational to me, right? I am so grateful that after all these years, I finally have gotten to connect (laughs) with you and become friends with you and colleagues. So thank you for being here today and and talking with me about addiction. Thank you so much for the the possibility. I'm very excited. Uh, I find this a very motivating topic. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yay. So my listeners know what brought me into the world of addiction in terms of my own personal uh, story and my story in terms of how I work with folks in addiction recovery, but how did you come into the field? Strangely. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, never set out to necessarily go into the field of addiction. My background is heavily in trauma and eating disorders, So because the two go hand in hand. They do. However, because I've been in the field for over uh, 27 years at this point, in working trauma, in working eating disorders, and figuring out what works and what doesn't work, I began to see the system of being a human as a holistic approach. Mm. So what that does is it puts me in a place of compassion, and I then teach that to whomever sits in front of me. Because if there's not that self-acceptance, that compassion, that's where the blocks occur. And one, one of the things that I think is so critical in today's world to get out as a message is that I believe our culture in America, I can't talk about other cultures because I know the American culture. Right. But I think our culture is losing our ability to hold a place within us to be able to make room for diversity, for people we don't understand, for mental illness, for addiction. And I think that we are being called 
to hold a bigger place. And this is why I actually had spoken to a couple people that I was going to be doing this interview and that I was going to be talking about the positive aspects of what addiction brings us. Okay. And what it brings us is it forces us to create a place in our culture for people who may not be the strongest when they're not in recovery. A recovery addict, I think, is like rocket fuel. Mm. She's been down and she's been down to the basement of Hades and now is on a fiery roll because they've, they've, they've seen the worst. They've been through the worst. So like a rocket, like a meteor, they are shooting for the basement into the sky and serving as a role model for the rest of our culture not to be afraid of mental illness, not to be afraid of addiction, not to be afraid of all these isms. And they remind us that we are chips and that we have to create places within our culture, within our society for everyone because our society is as strong as our weakest link. If as a society we do not take care of the weak, if we do not take care of the diverse, we're basically lawnmowers. Mm. We take in what we want and spit out the rest. Wow, I'm here. I'm totally getting what you're saying here. Did you always feel this way? Yes. Amazing. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate when people have these strong convictions and I find out that they've held them for like their whole entire lives. I think that's really empowering. Yeah, because I believe that I have experienced myself and I'm seeing as a counselor and in my private life and definitely in the political sphere that the ability to be empathetic and compassionate is falling by the wayside and we're polarizing. So one of the ways that addicts help us through this storm is they go to the rooms, right? There, and by the rooms, that's vernacular for there are programs to help addicts with their isms. So there's sex and love addiction, there's sex addiction, there's an alcoholics, synonymous, narcotics, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the rooms. So addicts, Break the paradigm that looking at your stuff indicates that you're bad and they are of service. And so they create generations of role modeling and empathy for previous generations. So to the addict that is sitting in his or her bedroom thinking that they're not hurting anybody by, by relapsing, by giving in one more time, it's not true. Every single addict in this world has a message. They are a teacher for that person behind them that needs their sobriety. Mm. So how, but how does that, how does that addict in the bedroom get to a place of strength so that they come out of the bedroom? I think this is where it's important to start looking at the work of attachment disorder that's coming out in 2014, where they're saying that addiction may be a symptom of attachment disorder. That doesn't mean that addiction is not genetically induced or, or, or predisposed, that a person is not genetically predisposed. One can have a genetic predisposition for addiction, but if they're put in the right environment, they may not trigger that disposition. And they can go on and thrive. Exactly. And this was shown to us in the, in the um, rat park experiment. 
I love that yes. video. Yes. And what happens in that little experiment, this was done I think in the 70s, what happens in that experiment is that for 57 days prior to the rats putting, being put in their little parks, they were put on heroin, I believe. Yes. And so one set of rats got put in the cold, icky rat camp and they had, it was cold, there was, it was cramped. Um, and they had the choice of water or I think morphine and they chose morphine naturally. However, then there was another rat camp and it was kind of like the Disneyland rat camp. They put, <laughs> you know, comfy pillows and balls and games, everything that a rat would love and they were, the rats were able to be socialized. And what do you know? The rats didn't need the drugs. They naturally chose water. So here, if you put a rat in an icky environment, they can be predisposed to act on their addiction or not. So as a culture, if we're going to make a, you know, a happy rat camp or a happy human camp, mm -hmm. what attachment disorder is saying is that we need to have empathy. We need to have chimps role model how to play an appropriate monkey see monkey do. Right. So if a, a well, another way of putting this is if you're a child and you are put in a chaotic environment, such as with a mother who, let's say, took a knife to her sister and the child is watching this, if the father comes along grabs up the baby who's watching this, the witness, and says, oh, poor baby, cuddles the baby, sets her down and says, mommy's just having a bad day, her bipolar's out of, out of control, we're gonna take her to the hospital, it's gonna be okay, sweetie. What has happened in that interchange is that the dad has role modeled that it's okay to feel those horrible feelings, I'm gonna pick you up, soothe you, and put you down and you're gonna see that you can survive a really horrible situation and that it's gonna be okay. Right, you're taken care of. Exactly, mm -hmm. and so if we as a human being experience that enough times, we're gonna be able to self-soothe. Right. Now according to the ACEs experiment, if we are not given that ability to self-soothe by the time we're teenagers, we're gonna figure out a way to self-soothe. And that's, when you say the ACEs experiment, that's the adverse ch uh, child yes. experiences? Yes, okay. where, where uh, they'll find drugs, they'll find sex, they'll find alcohol, they'll find whatever means possible to self-soothe because they don't have any of the re regulatory system within them to be able to do this. Now, I know that one of the things that really challenges addicts is the fact that they can go it alone. You know, terminal uniqueness. <laughs> they don't need the rooms. They don't need anybody. And it, it seems strange, doesn't it? Because here they'd rather grab onto a bottle or whatever it is they're going to grab onto rather than come into these warm, understanding, empathetic rooms or counseling or support groups, something. Why in the world would they choose their addiction? Well, because what uh, I think it is Bruce Perry, Dr. Bruce Perry, in Houston has done is he's taken brain scans of people who are exhibiting attachment disorder and therefore acting out on their addiction, their brain is literally missing parts. Wow. Yes. Parts. Parts, literally. So when an addict is saying, 
I'm not going to the rooms. I don't. I don't need y'all. I'm. I'm not weak. I know how to be strong. What they're saying is, I don't have the neural pathways in my head to be feel comfortable with attaching to anyone. So they're scared. Terrified. Yeah. Lots Utter- of fear. Yes. Utterly afraid. And also, on addition to their, in addition to their fear, when there's been chaos, when there's been trauma in the home, what has happened? So here, let's say daddy's drunk and you don't know when the next paycheck is and you don't know if there's running water tonight and you don't know if there's dinner, then you learn to not depend on a caregiver. People become noxious stimulants. Hmm. So again, in that kind of environment, how, how can somebody learn how to self-soothe so doesn't it make sense to reach for an addiction? But then if we have a culture that is looking at addicts and looking at their sensitivity and say, oh, you're bad, oh, get over it, just say no, what is an addict supposed to do but relapse, essentially, or render the rooms? But there's going to be such a shaming message, such a bad message. And this is where I'm leaning on our culture to look at themselves and be curious. Why is it that our culture, if we're so healed and not addicts ourselves, how is it that we can't handle, we can't tolerate somebody else's distress? Why do we polarize and make them bad instead of being curious and asking questions. Great question. Lack of compassion, lack of empathy. Exactly. Fear. Exactly. And so we are at record highs in our culture for obesity, depression, and drug addiction. Yes. Medication addiction. Especially right now. I mean, around the, the opiate addiction, Oh my God! Yes, it, it, it's it's so bad. Mm-hmm. It's scary. Mm-hmm. It is, and what this means is that we have more and more families cranking out addicts because in the families there's no empathy. You can't have empathy when you're when you're stuck in your addiction, when you're distracted, when you're thinking about how you're going to get your next hit, your next fix. So all this distraction is enough to dysregulate a child. Because what empathy is about is not just that there's a parent there being loving and feeding them, but there's a word that I'm bringing into the vernacular called attunement. That a child can actually be seen. Because if that child can be seen by somebody outside themselves, they can see themselves. But we're creating a society of people who don't see each other. Yeah. That's frightening. Yeah, we have distractions, right? We, we can't see each other. Um, we might have our smartphones, our tablets, our, you know, our casinos, or, you know, all these things, right? They're in the way of us attaching to our, our families. Exactly. Yeah. And so the work that I have been doing is bringing people to wholeness. Now, what does that mean? It means going within and finding 
Where are you blocked? Where are you saying nasty, nasty things to yourself? Because if you have grown up in one of these bazillion families out there where there haven't been any kind words said to you, there hasn't been unconditional acceptance, you're, you're neuropathically mapping whether or not you ever intended it to be is going to be missing some pathways. So it's not weakness that you don't know how to do something. It's not, it's not for lack of effort. It's that it's really hard to grow a brain. The brain is one of the organs, the only organ in the body, other than I think the liver, that can grow or regrow. Mm -hmm. And that's neuroplasticity, but it hurts to grow a brain. Ask any teenager, they're sitting there <laughs> lying down, cranky as anything. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And so to think as an adult that we have to go through that again, it sounds pretty... Painful. <laughs> I know for a fact it's painful. It's yes. so hard. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, rewiring and regrowing. I mean, geez, it's exhausting. Yes. Even after five years of solid recovery, you know, I still get tired mm -hmm. from doing this work. It's because mm -hmm. we're always doing it. Yes. Yes. As everybody should be. Exactly. Everybody. Yes. Wow. So you, you mentioned uh, empathy. And I think there's a confusion between sympathy and empathy. Yes, there is. Can you talk about that? I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the things that um, people get uncomfortable when I, when I say there has to be a place for addiction addicts in our society is they confuse empathy with sympathy, with compassion, with codependence. Yes. Because what I am never advocating for is that if you have been touched by an addict or if you are about to be touched by an addict, I'm not saying give them your wallet, give them your bank account, give them your body, give them your job. I'm saying compassion is saying this doesn't feel good to me. I'm sorry. You're not going to get that. You're going to have to figure out on your own how to get your what I call yummies. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to figure out on your own how to self-soothe. You can't use me to self-soothe. And unfortunately, in maybe it's the era of political correctness, it has been bad to be mean. Mm. We're not allowed to be mean. We're not allowed to take care of ourselves because that's mean. If, if I were a nice person... I would give away all that money to that sweet little addict who wants to go out for a good drunk. And how dare I not let them have, have what they want. Right. But yet, over and over and over, over, I've seen in my groups in which I'm teaching men, men and women, and women in my various groups how to articulate, I feel anxious, I make up, you're lying to me. I think that uh, you're setting me up to fall and I want to know, is this possibly what you're doing? That sounds so aggressive and so pointed that I work with people for years to be able to say such a simple sentence. Mm. And it's phenomenal because who they're practicing with is not a real live addict but just somebody who's sitting in my counseling room with them. And it is still 
a major struggle for somebody to say something so forthright. Wow. Yeah. You talk about your groups. Like, what, what, are, what are they like? What are you teaching? Other than empathy and compassion, is there any, like, particular uh, topic? Absolutely. So I've put it under this um, blanket uh, headline of emotional intimacy. And so when you're asking about empathy, there are many, many parts of emotional intimacy. And I think emotional intimacy actually feels bad for people to say because or for people to buy into because they think it might mean codependency or weakness. In my rooms, what people learn how to do is how to be assertive, how to be powerful, how to articulate their boundaries, how to navigate rage that's maybe being flung at them, how to navigate their own rage. In essence, what I'm teaching people to do is reach their fullest potential by learning how to handle and self-soothe their dysregulation around anxiety and stress and trauma. So it's very, very powerful. And one has to be very willing actually to see a lot of one's own issues come in, uh, especially if one walks into the rooms thinking that they have no addiction or no trauma. And then, wow, they're blowing up. Yeah. Um, or, or, or what's even worse is being manipulative and covert. Mm. And that's actually more often what I find. There are very, very few people that blow up in groups, but the manipulation and the covert is, is scarier to own because what's not normal in the group is to say something in a contained way. And what I mean by contained is not suppressed or uh, dulled down from the intensity, intensity, but a contained way maybe saying, I'm angry. I just saw you roll over my shoe and I'm angry and I'm curious, how is it that you managed to do that? Or another way that's contained is I'm angry. I saw you roll over my shoe. This is the 20th time you've rolled over my shoe. I have repeatedly asked you to ro not roll over my shoe. Please tell me what will work to have you not roll over my shoe. In both of those instances, they're both contained yeah. because I'm talking about my experience. Now for the second, let's say the listener has a lot of trauma. And the second way that I spoke was too intense for the listener. Then an emotionally intimate skill is to say, wow, your tone is too much for my intensity level to handle. Could you please bring it down? Or could you state it a different way? Yes. Oh, that's another way that people are able yeah. to ask for what they need. Um, you know, you talk about emotional intimacy. Your CD was on emotional intimacy, and here I was early in recovery. Uh, I was getting sober, and my uh, husband at the time was not. Mm -hmm. And so he'd be raging and, and acting out with alcohol, and I'm like, oh, I'm in codependent recovery. I'm in, you know, sex and love addiction recovery, and you're doing all these things that are, are really crazy and frightening. Um, which was different than what I was doing before where I would rage too, or I would go drink, right. or I would go do something wild and crazy, right. right? And so the information I was getting in recovery and from your tools is that I had the ability to do things differently. I just had to learn. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> because what I'm trying to do is create a good chimp 
Park. <laughs> I'm trying to play monkey see and monkey do right. with people so that that little part of their brain that's missing has the sense of what does it feel like to be emotionally intimate in a non-sexual way and feel good about being in relationship with people because that is what we're missing in our culture and that is what I teach in my groups and my individual work and in my counseling in my couples counseling work how can you be emotionally intimate and have it feel good without selling your soul or rigidly being buttoned up and not letting anybody in intimacy is a scary word yes it's very scary right and i don't know where that comes from uh i don't know if that's passed down through history or what but intimacy is a scary word first most people think it is automatically has to do with sex yes right mm -hmm. there's like no emotions attached to, to intimacy it's just about the sex not true right and so people have their own um, insecurities about sex so if they're immediately thinking that intimacy is about sex why would they uh, leave themselves vulnerable to that right right, right. Uh, and so uh, I think a lot of the work is to become comfortable with yourself to do your own self-care work um, to increase your self-esteem right that was one of the first things that I had to do was learn that I was valuable enough to, to care about right and i had to care about myself first right and then i can show up and care for other people mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. but it's just such a scary word do you have any recommendations for people who who are scared of intimacy what can they do the first thing they can do is become emotionally intimate with themselves okay all right and and that is that is that self-soothing technique because if you can self-soothe yourself, this is why in the rooms they talk about one day at a time, breathing, going for walks, meditating, because all those acts, even though they seem superficial and weak, grow the neural pathways in the brain to fill in that gap that's missing if you've come from a chaotic environment. So that is what I mean, become emotionally intimate with yourself. So. And, that, and I'm not talking sexual with yourself. I'm talking when you see yourself having a bad day, what do you do? Do you say to yourself, ah, get over it. Ah, so you, you don't have it so bad. Or do you say to yourself something like, wow, I have had a really bad day. I'm run down. That was a really bad encounter with my boss. I think what I most need is... A nap. Exactly. <laughs> or ice cream. Uh -huh. In moderation. Exactly. Everything balanced. A walk. A friend. A yeah. cuddle time with your teddy bear. Yes. Or your blankie. Yes. You know, all these things that will soothe that little girl or that little guy inside that nobody has ever soothed before. Because really, why would you want to perpetuate the abuse? You survive the abuse of whatever it is you went through, whether it's emotional neglect, because that is a form of abuse, whether it's um, the sense of being forgotten and not having parents attuned to you, because that is a form of neglect, which is a form of abuse. Yep. So why would you want to not attune to yourself? Why would you want to hurt yourself more? Because yes, that is one way of shaping your neural pathways, mm -hmm. but it's already been done. So you might want to try something new and be kind and gentle to yourself and see what that's like. But yeah, I know I say this and it's so scary for people to jump off that cliff. I found the key is to, to really let the client know that it will take time. 
It's not going to happen overnight. I'm not expecting you to leave this appointment and come back next week having figured it out. Yeah. Right. In fact, you don't have to figure it out by yourself. There, we, there's a network of support. Right. Tap into it. Mm-hmm. Right. Otherwise, it's just too damn scary. It right. Is. I'm going to run in the opposite direction. Right. Right. And and it is amazing to me whether uh, in couples counseling or in group, what happens when people feel that sense of emotional empathy and connection for the first time. I have seen couples blow up because they finally felt that warmth and that sense that somebody has their back. It is so frightening. The sabotage weapons come out immediately. And the same thing happen in, happens in groups, in my groups too. Yeah. Because it feels so good. Because believe it or not, in my groups, the whole group can be in an emotionally intimate place and feel that rhythm and feel that connection and it can feel so warm and enticing and it's so hard to achieve that that the sabotage <laughs> weapons come out and then the question is how do the other group members handle the fact how does the partner handle the fact yep that the sweet little wounded person in front of you just blew up your marriage, your group, your life, your job, whatever. How do you have the strength to hold that and not go after them and polarize and decide that because they're bad, they need to live in a box elsewhere in another planet? Mm. Mm. I think that's our knee-jerk reaction is to say, get out. Right. I, you're, you don't belong here. Exactly. You're not worthy. Right. Get off my planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people will, will invest a lot of energy in making sure that that happens, that that other person feels so tiny. Yes. Right. And that's not compassion. No. Right. That's domination. That's control. And I know that there has been a big movement for people to feel their feelings. Yes. And this is outdated technology from the 70s. And this is part of what I try and combat in my rooms, is that just because you feel something, that technology from the 70s, well, I feel this way. I'm going to tell you what I feel, (laughs) is not appropriate. That... If you're not, that's actually emotionally slaughtering somebody because you feel bad. You're going to take your venom, your emotional garbage, and sling it on somebody else because you think they deserve it. Well, what if it was a misunderstanding and you just butchered somebody because you personally had the misunderstanding? You can't take back the words. You cannot. And that's where uh, internal boundaries come in is when we're able to hold Um, what's going on internally until we can calm down and synthesize what we're really wanting to say and it might sound something like I feel hurt when when I heard you say this or when I learned that you did this and what I would like instead is this can you do it Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. that is so that is so different than you're a piece of crap uh, I hate you um, and get out yes yeah exactly And yet, even though that sounds so healthy, and I know many, many listeners are are saying to this, I do that. Oh, yeah, I I can do that. I can handle that. And yet, I know that at one point, there was um, a time when a neighbor came over to my house, and I I simply said, I feel attacked. And the neighbor went ballistic. Wow. To the point where somebody who was standing behind me kind of whispered whispered in my ear, 
uh, Danielle, do we have to call the cops? Goodness. <laughs> because I said, I feel attacked. That it is so, it is, it is so not a part of our natural discourse these days to say things like, I feel attacked. I, I don't like what you're saying. Could you please... Say it differently. Say it differently. Yeah, you know, we have to learn to be more kind, right, and loving, you know. To ourselves. To, our, to ourselves first, right? Yes. So we can be that way for other people. And that takes time. I think if you need a coach or a therapist to help you get there, ask for it. Mm-hmm. Seek it out because there are many of us out there, right? Absolutely. You know, they're, in Seattle alone, there are thousands yes. of therapists who are available to help us grow up emotionally. Um, you just have to look for them, mm-hmm. right? And you don't have to, you know, stick with the first person you find. If it's not a good fit, find someone who is, right? That's self-care. And I wish we taught that more. Yes, exactly. And I think... I. Th- and this is, the, this is the message of today where I'm trying to impart that it is not a weakness that one might not be able to handle situations or their alcohol or whatever it is that, that a person struggles with. That there is a, it's not just theory, it's not just this mumbo jumbo woo woo. There's a part missing in people's brains when they cannot handle certain aspects if you have grown up in a chaotic environment that means you're going to have parts missing from your brain and the only way to get that fixed is by finding another chimp because you have to play monkey see monkey do games yep like oh wow that sounds terrible and then you as the listener goes oh somebody cares that's what therapy is about that's what support groups are about that's what the rooms are about so this is why we need each other as chimps. This is why we need community. This cannot be learned in a book. Nope. <laughs> and in fact, the book industry is wonderful, but um, unless you get the live person in front of you showing you how to do this, your brain will literally not know how to do it. And I think there's been a lot of self-condemnation, a lot of self-criticism, that why can't we just do it ourselves? Because you have a part of your brain missing. Yeah, right, absolutely. And you can't heal that by yourself. Mm-mm. Wow. And I think one of the important things to stress here is that there is no perfect, Mm -mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I have a lot of clients who come in and say, well, I didn't have the the big trauma. Um, My parents just expected me to be perfect. Yeah. What do you think that did for you? Exactly. And this is what, this is what is also being discussed. This idea of attunement. Yeah. That if a parent doesn't see you, you don't learn how to see yourself. And it really is that detailed. It is really that fine. If you are feeling forgotten as you're sitting around the Sunday table, everybody has meals, but the TV is on and nobody's talking to each other and you're, you're sitting there maybe dying because you just got dumped. Yeah. But there's nobody to talk to, but everything is fine. Yeah, that's there's, not. Because there's no attunement. There's no, hey, you're not eating your mashed potatoes. What's up? Right, and sometimes it's just a simple question. What's up? Mm-hmm. Right, it's just that simple. And I have this uh, fabulous uh, acronym for fine feelings internalized, yes. not expressed. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> Remember that, people. Feelings internalized, not expressed, right? That leads to harm. Exactly. Right. And 
And if this world gets a little bit more chaotic, this starts to become more and more of a problem. I remember, it was last year, I believe, where um, there was a bombing in France and everybody was upset. And there is a picture of a whole bunch of people standing at the subway and an older woman who obviously had been in World War II is sobbing. And nobody on the platform looks at her twice. Nobody's leaning in. Nobody's asking her anything. And she is clearly having a breakdown among a crowd. And yeah. nobody can just lean in and say, what's up? What's going on? Can I give you a hug? Yeah. Oh. That's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that happens for all of us, yes. right? When we, we don't know when we might have a breakdown. Hell, I've had one in the middle of the street. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh -huh. It just hit me. I was like, you know, uh, it, but no one came up and said, are you okay? And right. uh, those things, right? We don't know when these things are going to happen. And so what I try to stress to people is get your self-care skills on board right do the work because you never know when you're going to need to pull out that toolbox yeah, yeah. right mm -hmm. and so you can go in to see danielle you can come in and see me you can go see somebody i don't care who it is as long as they're professionally trained they should be able to support you along the way even if that's for six weeks right exactly and the other thing that i want to uh, i want to emphasize here is that the kind of professional that will be needed to be helpful in this situation is not the kind of professional who's going to tell you what to do and maybe put you through a whole bunch of mental gymnastics. When you're dealing with the kind of trauma that I'm talking to, it's chronic PTSD, it's chronic trauma. And when there's chronic trauma like this, oftentimes people don't have this, the emotional structure to know what to do when they hit a situation. That's why validation and empathy has to be a part of the counseling routine. And I know that as insurance companies have taken effect and there's more CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy techniques being in introduced, it's like mental gymnastics, which is great if the person hasn't been exposed to con uh, chronic PTSD. Right. But if there's chronic PTSD on board, which is often the case in addiction, those, those type of mental gymnastic counselors won't work for this population. So it's got to be somebody that does the very technical thing of cooing. <laughs> of being empathetic. Yes. Of showing some feelings and connecting and validating that your experience is real. Not just looking at you saying, so what technique are you going to use? That will dysregulate and actually spin the listener into a greater trauma. You know, speaking of that, I've had clients come in and say, I want CBT and I want to know exactly what techniques you're going to use. And so I'm like, oh, this is, they, they've had this before, right? They're expecting the same thing, mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, I don't go changing my approach just because you come in with a, an outline of exactly what you want. Because yeah. there are people out there who can give you that. Right. right? And want to. And, and want to. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think we can be flexible, yeah. right in our approach but we 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 don't have to do exactly what the last person did in order to be effective absolutely and the reason why i emphasize this is because i think for a lot of people who are looking for a counselor 
who have been brave enough to go to the rooms, have brave enough to conquer their issues enough to actually reach out to another human, that it is so painful to then not be attuned to by a counselor. And that's why I'm trying to get the word out. There are many different counselors. And so if you don't feel connected with, you are not, you, the person who's seeking a counselor is not bad or wrong. That's your internal guidance system that you need somebody yummier. You need somebody that you feel like resonates with you. Yes, you, it, you need a better fit. Exactly. Yes. Well, Danielle, thank you for, for sharing your wisdom with us. I, I love the work that you're doing. I think your groups, you know, I, I've heard about your groups and I know that you have been doing them for a long time. Yes. And so folks, if you're out there and needing a good group, look up Danielle and, and talk to her about her groups because they're phenomenal. Where can people find you? I'm on the website at DanielleDubray.com, and that's the Danielle, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E, Dubray is D-E-B-R-A-Y.com. Awesome. And you're in Seattle. I am in Seattle in Madison Valley. Yay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the experience. It's been a delight to sit and converse with you. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at DJBurr1022 and TheDJBurr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Addict is produced by Recovery Legacy Network and DJ Burr. Today's music features tracks by CDK. Learn more at makinganaddict.com.